Would you join with me as we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example that has been set before us of one who has worked and labored to hide your word in their hearts that they might not sin against you and that it would draw others closer and deeper into Jesus Christ. And we pray that as a catalyst to the service, Lord, that that would set the trajectory of our hearts this morning in our worship to you and that we would rightfully respond in obedience to your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so thank you, brother. Thank you so much for doing that for us, your encouragement to us this morning. Um, While I'm at it, I want to give a a big shout out to several people in this. I want to thank, um, I want to thank Matthew Sisson, who couldn't be here with us this morning. Um, My wife, Rebecca, uh, Kevin Luck, Sarah Allen, AJ Hollis, Mindy Hakoop, and Harold Patrum. You guys and your discipline to memorize and hide God's word in your heart and then brave this stage and the lights and the people and get up here week after week for the last two months has drawn our hearts closer to Jesus. And I just want to say thank you. I think it's uh, very appropriate that we as a church give glory to God and put our hands together and give thanks for what they have done in encouraging us over the last two months. One last thanks goes to you, Brother John. I know you weren't expecting that, but this morning he's here with us today, and I just want to thank you for this, the privilege and the opportunity to stand here on the stage for two months straight and be able to go on this journey through the book of Revelation with the church, and I thank you for giving me that gift. I pray that they've learned half as much as I have and being able to have that responsibility, which I've never had before, so I thank you for that. Thank you. So he will be back with you next Sunday. Um, so with your sermon guide in hand, one last time, here it is, sermon guide in hand, one last time, go to Revelation chapter 3, open your Bibles there, as we're going to look at the seventh and final church that our Lord addresses. Together we have seen a buffet of churches in their strengths and weaknesses. We saw the second and the second to the last churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia that Jesus had no words of correction and warning, only words of praise for. But then other four churches we saw, Ephesus, Thyatira, Pergamum, and Sardis, we saw Jesus address some good things, but really a lot of warning and correction. And then we come to our seventh and final letter, the letter to the church at Laodicea. And what the pastor found when he opened up his mailbox that day was a letter of rebuke. A letter of rebuke. You see, this was a church that nauseated the stomach of Christ. And it was a very serious warning because they were in a critical condition. And they could turn to the one who we've called before the divine medic who was standing ready to resuscitate them and give life to them if they would only express their need for him. So we're going to begin right off the bat as we have in every letter where we see Jesus announcing himself to the church in a very appropriate way. And so number one on your handout is Christ is characterized by his dependability. He's characterized by his dependability. And we're going to begin our time in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. So Jesus begins the letter by announcing himself as the amen and the faithful and true witness. Point made, you can trust what he says. You can trust what Jesus says. Amen? Amen. All right, so I hope you just saw what I did there. Maybe some of you are so used to, you've heard all your life at different points. During a sermon, 
different echoes of amens taking place from time to time. Now, some of us here may not even know why that happens. We may not know, but let me just let you know that's a part of our language as followers of Christ. That's part of our Christianese, right? And so, amen simply means, yes, so be it. May it be fulfilled. And so when I say, you can trust what he says, and then in response you said, amen, what just happened there is you took the substance of what I said and you made it your own. Okay? And so you may trust what I say, but if there were more than one universe, you would have a multi-universe of reasons to trust what Jesus says. When Jesus announces himself in this passage as, as the amen, he is saying he is our yes He is our may it be fulfilled because in Christ, you and I have the answers to all the promises of God. In Jesus, they are all fulfilled in him. As Paul stated in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for as many are the promises of God in Jesus, they are yes. Therefore, also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. We can trust what he says because he's the amen. Also, we can trust what he says because he is the faithful and true witness. Jesus will never stand corrected. Why? Because he always tells us the truth. He always speaks the truth. And when he looks into the church with eyes like a flame of fire, he speaks words that are inerrant and infallible, meaning they are always true and they're never false. According to Revelation 21.5, he speaks words that are always faithful and always true. You can trust what he says. But you can also trust who he is. How else is Jesus dependable? Well, he is the beginning of the creation of God. Now, this doesn't mean, as Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons would like you and I to think, that Jesus was at one time not, and then he was created. It doesn't mean that. When he announces himself as the beginning, Jesus is telling us he comes first in time. He comes first in time. He is the originator of creation. No one or nothing came before him. Isaiah 43.10 says, Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. And then in Colossians 1, 16 through 17, the Apostle Paul speaks to Jesus' work in creation. And he says, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. But not only is Jesus first in time, he is dependable because he's first in position. He's first in position. In other words, he is preeminent. He is finest. He is first. He is chief. He is renowned. And he surpasses all. And when Isaiah saw the Lord, in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1, he says, I saw the Lord in the year that King Uzziah died, seated on his throne, lofty and exalted. Jesus is first in position And he's first in time. He is the amen. He is the faithful and true witness of God. And it is from a position of supremacy that Jesus is speaking to a church that sees itself sitting on the pew at the center of the universe and sitting exalted on the throne of their heart. And Jesus comes forward and he says, you're in my seat. You're in my seat. And number two, Christ condemns those who are deceived. He condemns those who are deceived. Beginning in verse 15, we see Jesus knows what we are doing. He knows what we are doing. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. 
I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Let's just, I want to test your geography skills for one short minute. About 90 miles southwest of here, there's a famous city in Garland County, Arkansas, and it is, anybody can tell us? Hot Springs, very good. And so how many of you there, by show of hands, have been to Hot Springs and sat in the bathhouses in 100-degree waters? Anybody? Okay, a lot of you guys. I've never had that experience. If you go to their website, you can see people, they describe them as the healing waters. Now, a little history for us. If you and I could go back in time, there would be this city six miles outside of Laodicea called Hierapolis. Hierapolis had this extensive aqueduct system that moved their hot springs all the way to Laodicea. But there was also a city called Colossae about 10 miles out, and they had cool, refreshing waters that also were moved into Laodicea because, you see, as wealthy as you will learn in a moment that Laodicea was, they lacked something, and it was a source of good drinking water. And so what you had is Hierapolis sending hot springs from six miles away and cold, refreshing waters of Colossae coming from ten miles away. But guess what? When they made it and they made their trip there, they were nothing but lukewarm. And lukewarm is good for nothing. You see, the hot springs are supposed to be a place of healing, hot, and refreshing, while the cool waters of Colossae were cold and refreshing to drink. But they were nothing but lukewarm for the Laodiceans. Question. In here, now we know this because we're just getting over a good, hot, humid summer, right? How many of you on a hot, humid, 110-degree summer in Arkansas like to mow the lawn and then sit down afterwards to a tall glass of lukewarm water? No one, right? Or how many of you, the best way to waking up is some lukewarm Folgers in your cup? How many of you? No one, right? Nobody likes that. Of course not. And that's the rebuke here. Jesus is telling the church that they are neither a hot spring, a place of healing for the spiritually sick, nor a place of refreshing for the spiritually thirsty. They have nothing to offer. They are disgustingly lukewarm. And right here we have a little sting, the faithful and true witness who stands and testifies to his church. You make me sick, and when I see you, I want to vomit. And those aren't exactly words that we all hope to hear or expect to hear from our Lord Jesus Christ, are they? He knows what we are doing and not doing, and Jesus knows who we think we are. Look at verse 17. Jesus begins with who the Laodicean Christians think they are. He says, you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, but then he goes on to describe who they really are. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So based on what he's saying to them here, we can start to understand that the lukewarmness that Jesus is speaking of, that he despises, is that everything about them is self-sufficiency. It's all about them. It's all about what they can do for themselves. You see, they had more in common with their own city than they did their Savior. Let me show you. Laodicea City became wealthy because of the textile industry and because of medical advancements. You see, they were famous for a beautiful black wool that they produced and then medical advancements and treatments for the ears and the eyes. They became so wealthy that in 60 AD they had been devastated by an earthquake. They had denied federal assistance from the Roman Empire because they were going to build it themselves. They had the money to do it. 
Matter of fact, a Roman historian remarked to this, and he said this, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us, and with no help from us. The city and the church were alike. They had more in common with their city than they did their Savior. Rather than having the mind of Christ, the church had the mind of culture. They both saw themselves as self-sufficient and in no need of anyone, including Jesus. Guys, the American church has got to be careful to hear these words. We have an abundant supply of wealth. We have availability at our hands of a lot of resources. And if we're not careful, we as a church can begin to drift in ease and think too highly of ourselves. And it's an attitude like this that makes Jesus sick. He condemns those who are deceived. And then number three, Christ counsels those who are deficient. He says in verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. The irony here of what Jesus is saying to them is that he is encouraging them to buy from him the very things that they believe they already have plenty of. It's from this mindset that Jesus must rescue us and often remind us of these next four important points, these great needs that we have. The first is this, we need Christ's riches. We need Christ's riches this morning. The Laodicean church may be physically rich, but they were spiritually bankrupt. Jesus says, I advise you to buy from me. Those are your key words, from me. Gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. You see, the riches that Jesus offers you and I this morning are infinitely greater than anything that the Arkansas Lottery or Publishers Clearinghouse could ever offer us. And the more we know, and the deeper we go with Jesus, his riches lead us like Paul, Romans 11, where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. The depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How do we get to the depth of those riches? It's the more we cultivate intimacy with God. The more we know and the deeper we go with Jesus, it leads us to continue to say what Paul says in Romans 11. After he says, oh, the depth of the riches, both both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. We need Christ's riches. Next, we need Christ's righteousness. We need his righteousness. Jesus expresses their needs here for white garments so that they may clothe themselves and that the shame of their nakedness will not be revealed. Irony alert. Laodicea was known for this fine, beautiful, black, glossy wool that they produced. And they had the Gucci and the Versace of the East, but it could not touch the spotless white garments of Jesus Christ that would cover their shame. Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our righteous acts are but filthy rags before God. Your clothes may be tailored. They may be dry cleaned and pressed. You may have the latest fashion trends and the money to finance it. But none of it can stand up to the righteousness and robes that Christ would produce and put on us to cover, cover the shame of, of those who would be poor and naked 
Every Christian apart from that would be poor and naked to their own shame. We need Christ's righteousness. We must be uh, not self-sufficient, church, but Christ-dependent. Not self-sufficient, but Christ-dependent. The third thing is we need Christ's remedy. We need his remedy. Jesus says they need eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. The, 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 the area of Laodicea was ironically known for their Phrygian powder, which would help cure sightlessness. And Jesus is telling the church, I want you to switch brands. It's not the Phrygian powder. You need Jesus' salve. And they needed Jesus to overcome their sightlessness. Jesus invited them to switch brands as a cure for their blindness. And like them, you and I, we can think sometimes too highly of ourselves. And we can think too highly of First Baptist Church and be blinded and self-deceived to our spiritual reality. Could we ask him this morning in the secret place of our heart that he would reveal our true spiritual condition? That we would ask him to reveal our blind spots and our spiritual cataracts. We need Christ's remedy today. And finally, we need Christ's rebuke. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. You know, if there's any good words that we could find of encouragement in this passage, there they are. Those whom I love, even in a self-absorbed church like the one in Laodicea, Jesus continues to affirm his love for his people. He loves them enough to confront them rather than allow them to continue in this course. Hebrews 12 says to us this morning about God's loving discipline to his children. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. See, he's the loving father waiting with arms wide open for his prodigal church and his prodigal children to come to him. For them to get his riches and righteousness and the remedy, they must repent. They must have a change of heart, a change of direction, a 180 of the heart, and then with zeal, And with zeal, pursue him day after day, week after week, year after year, the lover of their souls. We lovingly need his rebuke. And then number four, Christ challenges those who need direction. His reminder to them and us is he will always come in if we invite him. He will always come in if we invite him. This verse is not a verse to reach lost people with, though it can apply in a similar way. Jesus is speaking to his church. And he says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Now I want to show you something here. When we were in Indianapolis, I picked this up off an intersection. And it was something that a homeless person had left behind. And I picked it up as a souvenir because... For whatever reason, God gives me, it seems, more connection with homeless people. And it just was a reminder of those great open doors that he had given me. I wanted to take it home. If you can't see it, it says homeless. Anything will help. God bless. 
And what do I imagine is Jesus Christ standing outside his church, homeless, knocking, waiting for the Laodiceans to let him in. Now, an ironic contrast that was happening there in Laodicea because of their wealth, the Roman, they were subject to abuses from Rome because of their wealth. And so what you had is oftentimes they were forced to allow Roman soldiers into their homes to feed and provide for them, to give them shelter against their will. The contrast is you have Jesus standing outside, knocking and waiting. You have the Roman soldiers forcing their way in. You have the Roman soldiers being forced to be fed and provided for. When Jesus says, I will feed you. And I will dine with you. You see, Jesus is sovereign, meaning he can do whatever he pleases. But he didn't force his way into his church. You see, they had to open the door of the church to the Lord of the church. Finally, Jesus will allow us to reign with him if we trust him. To reign with him if we trust him. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I want to close this series in this way. You see, for the seven churches here that we've looked at, they've, say, they've, they've all faced various earthly realities. And let's just kind of cover that real quick in a nutshell. Our first church was Ephesus. You remember they were doing a lot of great things for God. They were opposing the teaching of the Nicolaitans, but they had left their first love. That was their earthly reality. Then you came to Smyrna. Smyrna was suffering for Jesus, but they were laying down their lives for the sake of love. And then we came to Pergamum. Pergamum had a lot of compromise with the truth. And then Thyatira. They looked more like the world than they did like the word. And then we came to Sardis. And Sardis was a church. They had the appearance of life, but they were in critical condition. They had a weak pulse. And Jesus said, you may look alive, but you're spiritually dead. And then we saw last week the Great Commission Church, Philadelphia. They suffered. They had seemingly little influence, but Jesus had opened up doors wide open for the gospel for them. And then we see the earthly reality of our church today, Laodicea, who was self-sufficient and lukewarm. These are the earthly realities. But listen, what is the reality of realities? Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, that we must set our minds on things above, not on the things of this earth. And what's the things above? Well, that's the reality of realities. That's what takes place at the center of our universe, even right now as we sit here this morning. There's something going on. And what Jesus wants his church in any of these situations to do is to look up and beyond the veil and see what's taking place. And that's why I believe what takes place in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 are so fitting as they follow these letters and we see the scene of the throne room of God. And if you would, just let me share that with you for a moment. John says, immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne there were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. 
And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the thrones, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And may that church be the reality of our heart this morning as we look beyond the earthly realities to the heavenly reality and be transformed by the glory and majesty and supremacy of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and this experience that Brother John has allowed me to have over these last two months to dive in and look at this glorious vision of Jesus in chapter 1 and then his message to the churches and to us, chapters 2 and 3, and then just to think about the reality over these last weeks of what's going on as we speak in this moment. 
beyond the veil. And I pray, God, that you would capture our hearts this morning with that reality and that we would respond and it would draw us out of our lukewarmness. It would draw us out of our blindness. It would draw us out of our spiritual our spiritual uh, uh, of, of death, as, as Jesus talked about to the church at Sardis, that, that, Lord, you would breathe new life into us this morning. Lord, help us to respond however it is you would have us to respond in this moment. But, Jesus, you are the amen. You are the fulfillment of all the promises of God. You are the faithful and true witnesses. You, witness, you will never stand corrected. You are first and foremost in time and position. You sit on your throne, lofty and exalted. And we come to you humbly this morning and ask, Lord, that you would forgive us of our short-sightedness, that you would forgive us for our blindness at times, the, the spiritual cataracts that we speak of. Lord, that you would help us to see, open our eyes, help us to see you in all your glory and let it transform our lives. Let it transform our unity as a church. Let it transform our going into the culture, into the nations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning as we take a moment to respond? James is going to be up here up front. I'm going to be up here, and we're going to be here ready to, 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 to receive you. If you would like to respond, if you would like to talk to somebody, you would like somebody to pray with you on how you can know Jesus Christ, the one who sits on the center at the center of the universe, and you're ready to get off the throne of your heart and let Jesus take his rightful place. This is the time this morning. Today is the day of salvation. I want to invite you to come forward and make that public boldly and talk to James, talk to me about that. If you'd like to talk to somebody about church membership, about baptism, whatever it may be, we would love to meet with you, to pray with you this morning as we enter into a time of worship. I just want to ask you guys to go ahead and let's get some things started here. We are going to shuffle the playlist a little differently this morning. Typically, we sing four songs in the beginning, but this morning we only sang three because we're going to end in two songs, two songs that flow out of the heart of Revelation 4 and 5 as we give God the glory. And we begin with this song the lion and the lamb that we just saw standing as if slain in Revelation chapter 5. Let's give him our hearts this morning.